Hey, uh, good morning, church. It's 11 a.m., so I'm going to go ahead and get us started. Um, my name is Matthew Capone, and I'm the pastor here at Cheyenne Mountain Presbyterian Church, and it's my joy to bring God's Word to you today. We've been having some technical issues, so you're in my home office this morning. So welcome. You just had a great view of uh, out the window at my neighbor's house. <laughs> um, as we get started, I just want to thank everyone who attended our prayer meeting yesterday morning. Uh, it was a really sweet time. As you attended now, of fellowship and prayer with one another and with the Lord, and I was really encouraged by that. Uh, it was wonderful to see so many of your faces all at once. If you're new or visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, I'd encourage you to go to our website, which is www.cmpca.net. Uh, and hopefully someone can post it there in the comments for us. And uh, when you go there, there will be a pop-up, and that pop-up will give you a link to go to our visitor form, and that'll give us a chance to connect uh, with you. I remind everyone, uh, those who are visitors and those who are not, that the best way to stay up to date with what's going on in our church is through that website, and it's also through our Friday email. And if you're not on the Friday email, you can sign up for it on the bottom right of every page of our website. Uh, and if you are on the Friday email, but you don't read it, uh, I urge you to start opening those because during this time, that is our primary way of communicating with you. Um, so that, for example, is how you would have known the details for joining our congregational uh, prayer meeting. <clears throat> Finally, I'll remind you as I do that uh, you can see me, uh, but I really can't see you. And so I encourage you all to interact with each other, to greet one another. We can see numbers. Uh, but unless you comment, it's very difficult to see names. So this is another way for us to give ourselves a sense of the fact that we're gathered together, even as we're separated. And so it can be something as simple as saying good morning to everyone or just sharing uh, where you're watching from or who you're watching with. Um, but that's a, a way for us to know that you are here and for us to connect uh, with each other during a time when it's difficult to connect. <clears throat> this morning, uh, we're starting a new sermon series. We are going to take a look over the next four Sundays at the book of Jonah. And before I say what it is about, I want to tell you what the book of Jonah is not about. The book of Jonah is not about a fish. Uh, the fish appears a grand total of four times in three verses. And as one of my friends has pointed out, the fish actually has no speaking parts. It is, however, a story about a man named Jonah who lived in the 9th or 8th century BC. He lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he received a command from God to go to a city called Nineveh. <clears throat> Nineveh is in what's now modern-day northern Iraq. And this story, while it is about the man named Jonah, even more than that, it's about God's mercy. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be taking a different uh, angles at God's mercy diving into what it is and how it applies to us. The theme verse for this book comes from chapter 2, verse 9, which we'll see next week, and that verse tells us that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we're going to see God's salvation over and over, which makes sense because, of course, that's one uh, aspect of God's mercy. <clears throat> With that, we're going to jump right in, and we're just going to ask this question, this angle this morning, why is God's mercy so offensive? Now, that might seem like a strange question to you, but if you think about it, God offers mercy to, to everyone in this world, right? But many people reject it. And many people find uh, the Christian story of God's mercy offensive. We're going to see some offensive things in chapter 1 of Jonah. And in fact, in some ways, perhaps the chapter is meant to offend. 
Uh, it presents for us a story that's upside down and it switches the roles we would normally expect. And so with that, we're going to begin. I invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. You can, of course, turn in a uh, browser that you're on and search for it. You can bring it up on your Bible. You can bring it up on your phone. However you bring it up, remember that this is God's Word. And God tells us that His Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In other words, God has not left us to stumble alone in the dark, but instead He's given us His Word to show us the way to go. And so it's that reason that we read uh, Jonah together, starting at chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? Verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I invite you to pray with me as we come to this portion of God's word. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come to you and pray to you because um, you are our Father, and you care for us as your children, and we thank you that that's because of your mercy. Uh, we praise you that you haven't left us alone, um, but that you've given us this book to teach us about your ways. And so we ask that you do that. You'd send your spirit now, and you would help us. You'd send your spirit to me as I speak, and to these friends, our community, um, as we listen and learn together, that we would know uh, and understand more and more how beautiful you are, 
how beautiful Jesus is. And we ask these things, not because we've earned them or deserve them, but we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, story starts out in a way that would be very expected by the original audience of Israel and then almost immediately turns upside down. It starts out in an expected way because the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and this is a typical way that we would find out in the Bible about a prophet and the word that he's been given. This is a typical way of beginning a book, and after that, nothing else is typical. Uh, We would expect, if this were a different book in the Bible, that Jonah would be called to go to God's people. That's where prophets were usually sent. But instead of being sent to God's people, he's sent uh, away to the pagans. He's sent to a city called Nineveh. And not only is this a city uh, of pagans, it's actually one of Israel's greatest enemies. Remember that Jonah's living in the 9th or 8th century in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so it's not going to be that many years before the kingdom of Assyria in 722 BC is going to take the northern kingdom into exile. These are not then just some enemies of Israel, but one of their very greatest enemies. Even more than that, uh, the the country of Assyria was known during that time for their cruelty. Some people have labeled them a terrorist state. And so we could imagine this would be similar today to God coming to someone on Fort Carson and telling them uh, that he wants them to deliver his word to the Taliban or to Al-Qaeda. And so immediately from the very beginning, we're caught off guard. This is not what we would have expected uh, from God, but it's also not what we would expect from his prophet. Typically, a prophet would say, perhaps like uh, Isaiah did, here I am, Lord, send me. But instead, Jonah chooses to do the exact opposite of what God has called him to do. He's called to go to Nineveh, which is in the east, and he chooses to flee to Tarshish, which is in the west. We're told multiple times that he goes away from the presence of the Lord. And we see the repetition multiple times of the word down. In verse 3, we hear that Jonah goes down to Joppa. In that same verse, he goes down into the ship. And then in verse 5, he goes down into the inner part of the ship. Jonah's trajectory is very, very bad. He is doing the exact opposite of what God's prophet should do. Doesn't get any better, though, in the following verses. As we continue uh, following Jonah, we have another upside-down situation. Not only does God do something unexpected or Jonah do something unexpected, uh, but we see a role reversal uh, between Jonah and these sailors that he joins. He's getting on a ship to go on his way to Tarshish, and we quickly see that he and the sailors have very different responses to what's going on. There's a great storm that comes in verse 4. We're told the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And Jonah chooses uh, to sleep in verse 5, while the sailors uh, choose to pray. In fact, we'll come back to this later. This is why the captain in verse 6 comes and rebukes Jonah. In other words, the pagans are actually more spiritually active than God's prophet. They continue to be problem solvers. We see this uh, in verses 7 through 13 especially. Of course, even in verse 5, they're hurling cargo into the water, right? They're trying to figure out some way that they can save themselves and save this ship. So they're hurling cargo down. They're casting lots. They're praying. They're doing whatever they can to save life and limb. They even apply that to Jonah. Jonah tells them, uh, I believe it's in verse 12, that all they need to do is hurl him into the sea if they want to save themselves. But they're so concerned with human life that they don't go to that as their first option. 
Instead, in verse 13, they try something different. They row hard to get back to dry land. While uh, Jonah is endangering the sailors, the sailors are working hard to protect and save Jonah. The contrast gets even worse, however. Jonah tells them in verse 9 that he fears the Lord. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Except that everything that he's done up to this point is the exact opposite of fearing the Lord. Jonah claims with his mouth to have fear of God, but by his actions he clearly does not. The sailors, on the other hand, actually do fear God. We see that in verse 10. First, the men were exceedingly afraid after they find out that they're in danger from Jonah's God. And then we find out in verse 16 that this fear turns into true and real fear of the Lord. At the very end of the story, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. God's prophet does not fear God, even though he says he does. The pagans actually do. And it's finally made complete, this contrast, when we see that Jonah, God's prophet, receives God's judgment, and the sailors receive God's mercy and his salvation. Verse 15, Jonah is hurled into the sea, and the sea ceases from its raging. So he receives his judgment for running from the Lord, although we'll see in the next chapter God's mercy is still there for him. Verse 16, these sailors are saved. And so this is the exact opposite uh, of what we would expect. We have a prophet of God who's supposed to be going to pagans, and instead he runs away from them. We have a prophet of God who behaves poorly, and pagans who behave well. We have a prophet of God who doesn't fear God, but pagans who do fear God. We have a prophet who doesn't care about the pagans, but the pagans care about him. And so what are we to make of this inside-out, upside-down story? Well, first of all, it is highlighting and underscoring for us that God is a God of incredible mercy. He's a God of incredible mercy because he sends Jonah to Nineveh, this terrorist state, as some have labeled it. He sends it to people that perhaps Israel doesn't believe, need, or should receive any of God's mercy. Now, you might object at this point. Uh, he was told to pronounce God's judgment, right? He's calling out against them for their evil, verse 2. But when God goes to a nation to cry out against their evil, to declare his judgment, often uh, it's with an implicit offer of salvation. Hey, here's the judgment that's coming. You can avoid it through repentance. And so God cares enough about this city that he sends a prophet to it. He's certainly not under any obligation to proclaim his judgment. God is showing incredible mercy to people that Jonah believes should not receive mercy. And that means we have our first answer here. Why is it that God's mercy is so offensive? Well, one of the reasons it's so offensive is because God offers his forgiveness and his grace to people who we might believe don't deserve it. God offers his forgiveness and his grace to this terrorist state. God offers his forgiveness and his grace to people who don't cover their mouths when they call from the grocery store. God offers his grace to people who have the wrong view on issues. God offers his grace 
to racists. He offers repentance to them. God offers his grace to Democrats and Republicans. God offers his grace to Bernie bros, and he offers it to never Trumpers, and he offers it to people who wear MAGA hats. God offers his grace to all sorts of people, even people we would not extend his mercy to. Sometimes when I talk with non-Christians, one of the things I hear is an objection to God's judgment is that, of course, we would be more merciful than God, right? How, how, why would God destroy someone? Why would he judge them? But the reality is that God is much more merciful to us. While we might say that, uh, if we listen to the words that come out of our mouths about other people, especially those we disagree with, especially those from different backgrounds, it becomes all too clear that we don't have the kind of mercy that God has. And so God's mercy, uh, first of all, extends to people who we don't think deserve it. But that is not the only thing that's offensive in this chapter. The next thing that's offensive about God's grace is, of course, Jonah. The Israelites reading this passage, receiving this word, this story, uh, would have immediately associated themselves with Jonah, right? Not Nineveh, not the sailors. And yet their hero is not a hero at all. In fact, he's someone who disobeys God. He's someone who's hard-hearted. And even more than that, uh, he's someone who has to learn from the pagans how to behave. God shows in this story, sometimes those who don't have faith in him behave better than those who do. And so if they had any temptation to believe that there was something special about them morally because they belonged to God, this is a slap in the face. Jonah here is a terrible terrible prophet. He lacks God's mercy and his compassion, and he refuses to obey God. And so there's an implicit challenge here uh, to Christians. There's a rebuke here from the captain to Jonah in verse 6. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Here, this pagan sailor is asking God's prophet to do what he should have been doing all along. He's asking him to have the kind of mercy and compassion that God has, and yet he doesn't. How often do we find ourselves lacking compassion and care for the world around us? And how often, like Jonah, do we confess that we fear the Lord, but by our very actions show that we don't? How do we confess that he's a God of steadfast love, and then refuse to show that steadfast love to others around us. God's grace is offensive because it points out that we don't deserve it either. Grace is by definition something we don't earn, right? And so Jonah reminds us <clears throat> that we are not here, we're not Christians, because we're morally superior to other people. In fact, sometimes it's those around us who don't have faith that we need to learn from and be challenged by. That's what Jonah discovers uh, in this chapter. And so God's grace is offensive. His mercy is offensive. It's offensive because he offers it to people that we don't think deserve it. And it's an offensive because it tells us that we don't deserve it either. We don't have some special claim on God's grace, but we're desperately in need of it, just like everyone else. Jonah is desperate for God's grace. He needs God's mercy um, just as much as any one of us. God's power is also in full display 
in this passage. In verse 4, we see that it's the Lord who brings a great wind. He's the one who brings the storm. And then in verses 15 and 16, it's the Lord who ends the storm. Now, it might be easy just to see that in terms of God's power uh, in this passage, but his power is even more than that. He accomplishes what he wants regardless of what men do. Think about it for a second. Jonah has been called to go to pagans and declare God's word to them, and he runs away from them. And then God uses Jonah to declare his word to pagans. In other words, Jonah's actions have not thwarted God's plans in any way. He is still achieving his purposes through this rebellious prophet. We can run, in other words, away from God's judgment, uh, show us what happens when we reflect God's mercy and his compassion to the world. And so there's a, a warning and a rebuke for God's people not to be like Jonah, not to be someone hard-hearted forgetting God's mercy towards us and towards others, but to be people like the sailors filled with concern for the world around us. In the midst of the storm, they're looking out for others. And it's not that they're moral, good moral people, but they recognize the God of the storm. They recognize God's great power and his great mercy. And that power and that mercy leads them ultimately to fear God and to worship him. And so we respond in the same way. Like the sailors, we fear and worship God because of his power and his grace. And we don't do it to earn anything from God. As we'll see in the next chapter, God's grace still applies to those who run away. But we do it because his mercy comes first. His mercy comes first in our lives, and it also comes first in this book. It's God who begins by being merciful and sending a prophet to Nineveh. And it's God who's merciful by saving these sailors. And so it's God's mercy and compassion as we understand it and know it in our own lives that changes our hearts so we show mercy and compassion to others. Of course, God's mercy and his compassion, his concern for people in this world, while we see it in the book of Jonah, we see it ultimately, fully, and finally in Jesus. Jesus comes and lives as a real man in real time and real space, and he walks on this earth living the life that we should have lived, a life of perfection, and dying the death that we should have died, the penalty for our sins, for our hard-heartedness. And Jesus demonstrates this mercy and this power. He has mercy towards people we think might not deserve it. He shows mercy towards the woman at the well in the Gospel of John. He's known for eating with tax collectors and sinners. He shows mercy to a man like Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, who is a terrible cat tax collector and exploits other people. And of course, as we see with Zacchaeus, once he understands God's mercy and compassion and grace, he acts in the same way. Jesus also shows God's incredible power. Jesus also calms a storm in Matthew chapter 8. A storm where many people, his disciples, are afraid. He goes around healing, performing miracles, showing his power and authority over the creation and those disciples in Matthew chapter 8, when they see his work, say this, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? We see God's mercy and his power, of course, ultimately on the cross. Because it's there that he demonstrates his power, that he's the Son of God, by laying it down. 
and not using it. And that's the way that he shows his mercy. He uses his power to save us, even while we're still sinners. That's what Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jesus comes to show mercy and compassion to hard-hearted people like Jonah and hard-hearted people like you and me. It's in Jesus, then, that we ultimately can be like the sailors, fearing God and worshiping him and showing that same love and compassion that he has towards the world, uh, towards our world as well. And so why is it that God's mercy is so offensive? Well, it's offensive because he shows it to people we don't think deserve it. And even more, it's offensive because it reminds us whatever claim we think we have to right behavior, we don't deserve it either. But like the sailors, we can cry out to God for his salvation, knowing that because of Jesus, he will provide it for us. If we're humble enough to receive the offense of the gospel, then we can be blessed enough to receive its salvation. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for this word, from, for your word. And we ask that you would drive it deep into our hearts, that you'd convict us of our lack of care and concern for those around us. And you would show us our need for your grace. You'd meet us at that very same point of need as we cry out to you that you would come and save us as well. Save us in Christ from your punishment for our sins and you'd save us from our hard hearts. You'd show us God's tender and soft heart of mercy towards us and it would move us to have hearts that are tender and full of mercy towards others. We thank you that while we can't do these things on our own, Jesus has offered to do them for us by giving us new hearts. And so we ask these things not on our own merit, but in his mighty name. Amen. Thank you all for joining me this morning as we end our time together. I am going to give you a benediction. Remember that a benediction is a good word from God. It's a word that's true in the midst of a world filled with words that are not true. It's tradition for the minister to hold up his hand, to send out God's blessing on God's people, and for God's people to hold out their hands to receive God's blessing. And so I invite you to hold out your hands now and receive God's good word over you from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks so much, and I look forward to seeing all of you soon.